Listener Production. Please leave your message after the tone. Why am I jealous of my ex? I am so stressed all the time. How do I get into a routine? Is TikTok making me anxious? I think I'm being manipulated. Someone told me you could live with half a brain. This is Do You Fucking Mind? Mindset Hacks for a Badass Life. Hosted by me, Alexis Fernandez. Hello, my beautiful brain-loving beans. Welcome to today's episode. So this episode is going to be brain-heavy, neuroscience-heavy. So for those of you that love that shit, welcome. Um, It's also really talking about depression and different aspects of depression and different treatments for depression. I am, as you've seen in the title, going to be focusing heavily on ketamine as a treatment for depression and anhedonia, which I'll go into in a second. Um, But you'll get a really good insight as to kind of the quote-unquote traditional antidepressants and how they work versus something like ketamine, which is kind of up and coming. Well, it's been around for a while, actually, but it's more up and coming as a mainstream treatment for depression in certain countries. And then I've got a brain fact as well. So if you love all the sciencey brain stuff, then lucky you. But I have been requested not only to do stuff about ketamine and the effects on the brain, but also a lot on depression. So here we are. We've married the two together and we're talking about that. Before we get into the brain fact and the topic of today's episode, I a life update. I'm back from holidays, went to Bali. I'm back. Really nothing to say. You know when you go away on holidays and you have a great time, but you're like, boring stories. Great time, not entertaining stories. So not going to bore you with the details. It was just a fucking good time. Got a lot of like writing done and stuff like that. So it was really nice and yeah. Lots of saunas, lots of ice baths. Also, for those of you that haven't already signed up, I have my premium beans DYFM Plus subscription. And this is where you get an extra five episodes a week. So you get three meditations. You guys know how much I bang on about meditations. And you get two mini pep talk episodes that cover all sorts of topics just to get you in the zone for the day. So including these two free episodes, you get me in your ear every single day as your voice of reason or the devil on your shoulder, however you want to look at it. So that's 15 Australian dollars a month. Um, and it's just like a rolling subscription Um, So if you want to check that out, then go to dyfm.supercast.com or you could go to my website, which is dyfmpod.com and just go to memberships and you can access it from there. And it just, and once you sign up, it just like shows up wherever in whichever app you listen to your podcast, it will show up there as a podcast that you're subscribed to. So you don't have to be entering any other new weird places. You just go wherever you listen to your podcast and you get all my free episodes and of also all the um, the bonus episodes as well. Love that so much for all of us. Okay, let's get into the brain fact of today's episode. I'm going to be talking about ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy, normally to treat depression, but it also treats a whole gamut of mental illnesses as well. So what is it? How does it work? So electroconvulsive therapy basically involves placing a patient under a general anesthesia and giving them a muscle relaxant. And they place electrodes to the patient's head. It might be on one side or on both sides of the head, depending on the patient. And the patient receives these electrical pulses to the brain. And this stimulation triggers something in the brain, which is pretty much like a seizure. And this treatment is repeated several times a week for a period of time, which would be like a couple of weeks for certain people. It depends. Obviously, it's very patient dependent. And it has the capacity to eliminate 
depressive symptoms for a, like a decent period of time in many patients. Um, obviously, it's quite a procedure, like you're going under general and you're doing this like in, you know, quite close together. The, the sessions are quite close together a few weeks. So it's not for everyone. It's used for severe depression and it's used for treatment-resistant depression. It's also used to treat mania as well. So if you look at someone with bipolar, they will have manic well, not everyone, but certain bipolar patients will have manic episodes, so it's it's really effective to treat mania. And catatonia, which is like a lack of movement or fast or strange movements, a lack of speech and things like that. And then other disorders as well. So it's, like I said, it's not going to be the first line of treatment to treat depression. Um, you would normally do something along the lines of like medication, antidepressants, and in conjunction with therapy, that would be the first line of treatment for depression. Because obviously, like I said, it's, it requires general anesthesia and all of that. And also there's side effects. And one of the main side effects is a memory loss. Not permanent, but there is a memory loss that can last up to weeks. Um, it can The side effects can be headaches. It can be unsteady gait, drowsiness, poor concentration, among other things. But for somebody who has severe, severe, severe depression that is treatment resistant, that for them might be a very worthy trade-off to have, they would rather have side effects like this and feel a lot better versus um, living with really severe depression. So it, of course, it depends on the patients and what they're willing, you know, and, and some people have worse side effects versus others. It's also way safer now than it was before. So in the past, it's got like a really bad like stigma around it because in the past it was not done with anesthesia and it was done at like higher levels. And so it looked like very invasive, very intense. It's a lot safer now. It's under general. It's in a much more controlled environment. Um, and there are obviously less side effects than how they used to do it before. And why is it effective? So a lot of the studies on the effectiveness of ECT has been done on mice for obvious reasons. Um, because the you know there's a lot of limitations when you do things in human studies, so it's better to do it in a mouse or a rat model. Um, but obviously the best studies are done on human control studies and randomized human control studies. But the reason there's so many limitations around ECT and studies is because it's really hard to get control groups to do this. That is people that don't suffer from debilitating depression to go in and go under general and have, you know, electrodes put on their head and, you know, pulses of electricity to bring on seizures. So it's really hard to have like really robust studies done on this. But from what we seem to know, ECT seems to be able to change, like to cause changes in the brain chemistry. So these changes are responsible for like quick reversal of certain depressive symptoms. So normally improvements are noticed after around six treatments and it doesn't work for every patient. So you might be even resistant to that as well. Um, for a lot of patients, because antidepressants take weeks to kick in after you've been treatment resistant to a couple, you might, people might try this one instead and it's going to be a generally a faster result. And then basically after the sessions are done, you still need ongoing treatment so the depression doesn't come back or get worse, but it is less frequent and it's like coupled with other treatments as well, like behavioral therapy and things like that. Um, so basically there's a whole bunch of changes that occurs within the brain. It's got several impacts on the brain. We see changes in gene expression 
in functional connectivity between between brain regions, so how the brain regions are connected when the brain is performing a function. Um, we see alterations in neurochemical levels, so talking about neurotransmitters, um, neuro like hormones within the brain, um, permeability of the blood-brain barrier. All of these things combined are responsible for why ECT is so efficacious. One large hypothesis is the neurobiochemical hypothesis as to why ECT might be so like effective. And it's because it's known to modulate neurotransmitters and impacts the release of neurochemicals, such as something called neurotrophic factors, um, which are like transcription factors, hormones, uh, things like serotonin, dopamine, endogenous opioids. There's all these things. And these are things that affect your mood. So if you are influencing the release cycle of neurotransmitters that directly affect your mood, that's obviously going to have beneficial effects on your depression. Okay. So like I said, it's difficult to get a clear understanding on the effects of it uh, because there's there are limitations within these studies. So everything that I am speaking about, you know, keep in mind there are a lot of limitations within the study. There's still a lot of lack of consistency across studies um, in how the studies are formed, who the studies are performed on because of this lack of control groups as well. And in the size of the studies that they're doing, ideally we want bigger studies with control groups and all of that, but with something that's so invasive like this, there's going to be a lot of limitations. But that is the brain fact for today. So if you ever wanted to know about electroconvulsive therapy, that gives you a bit of an overview on what it is. Okay, now let's get into the episode of today. This is a bit science heavy, so listen to it twice if you need to. But I personally find it fascinating. And if you know me, which a lot of you already do, you know that I love talking about pharmacology and ketamine falls into that. So we're going to talk about ketamine and its effects on depression. But there's two things that I want to speak about because I mentioned anhedonia as well. So I'm going to be talking about what ketamine is and its mechanism of action. And then I'm going to be talking about what anhedonia is so you have a good understanding because ketamine has these really positive effects on depression and anhedonia. So I'll be talking about what that is. So let's start with ketamine. Ketamine is, as far as its effects on the brain, is a non-competitive antagonist at the NMDA receptor for glutamate. So I'm going to break down that sentence because it sounds really wordy, but it's going to make a lot of sense in about 10 seconds. So firstly, we have something called a non-competitive antagonist. Non-competitive, meaning that it's not competing at the binding site where an agonist would bind, but at a different site of the same receptor. So you've got your cells, right? And then on these cells that you've got receptors, which are like channels that open and close that allow an influx influx of positively or negatively charged ions, whether it be potassium, sodium, whatever. So you've got these channels everywhere or receptors. And on that, re- on that channel, you've got a receptor and then you've got things that bind to these receptors either at at the same site or at different sites. Now, when you talk about something non-competitive, it's binding at a different site of what the main binding agent would be for that receptor, okay? So that's what it means by non-competitive. It's not competing for that same pocket. An antagonist is a substance that interferes with or inhibits the action of another. Antagonizing, when you antagonize someone, you're thinking of like you're stopping or you're blocking or you're doing something like that. So in this case, it's inhibiting the action of the agonist. And an agonist is something that activates a receptor to produce a response, okay? Antagonist will inhibit or get in the way of, and agonist activates to get a response. 
Okay. So when you think about a non-competitive antagonist, you've got the channel, you've got something that would normally fit in a pocket to activate that channel. And then you've got this non-competitive, it's binding to a different channel and it's blocking the effects of that initial thing that was trying to produce a response. So basically you're blocking the effects. Okay. And then the next thing is, so that's non-competitive antagonist. Then we've got NMDA receptor. This is just a receptor within the brain, within the cell membranes for glutamate. And glutamate is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the central nervous system. Excitatory, it means that it's, you know, it, it, it creates more excitation in the brain, more action potentials, more things like that versus inhibitory. So sentence again, it's going to make a lot more sense. Ketamine is a non-competitive antagonist at the NMDA receptor for glutamate. Okay. Ketamine is a PCP, which is phencyclindine derivative which gives a feeling of dissociation of the cortex from the limbic system. And this is what causes these painkiller effects, this sedation as well, and this feeling of dissociation within your body, okay? It is a short-acting anesthetic, and it can be administered in several different ways. Um, but when we're talking about for, ant for antidepressant functions, it's either administered intravenously, IV, or through a nasal spray. Um, inhalation of it. Uh, but of course it can be, it could be ingested orally as well. It came around in the 1960s more so to treat animals as an anesthetic. And then it was used for humans more, more so around the 1970s. Uh, and now it's not really used as a general anesthetic anymore because of the kind of adverse reactions. And there's just better options available as far as you know, anesthetics go, but it's still really good for acute pain therapy, chronic pain management, shorter surgeries, things like that. It can still be used. It was then, of course, obviously popularized as a recreational drug because of these dissociative effects and how people feel when they have that high of ketamine. Now I'm going to quickly address what anhedonia is. So anhedonia is a component of depression, but not like, or I should say a component of major depressive disorder, which is one type of depression. And it refers to this dismissed pleasure and diminished interest in something that used to be rewarding. So also described as an inability or reduced ability to experience pleasure. It's present in depression, in bipolar disorder, and it's also present in many neuropsychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia. And it's, like I said, it's a core feature of major depressive disorder. There's two types. One is consumatory. So that's the enjoyment of food, coffee, a movie. Um, so that is consumatory anhedonia. And that's where that stuff no longer exists. Like you don't enjoy coffee. You don't enjoy like this exciting meal. It doesn't really matter to you. And then the other one is motivational components. That's where you look forward to or where you anticipate something rewarding, like a holiday or a night out with your friends or something like that. It's more the anticipation of, not the enjoyment of a certain thing that you're consuming in the moment. And some people suffer from one, but not the other. You don't necessarily suffer from both at the same time. And research shows that people with major depressive disorder and bipolar disorder will likely have motivational deficit over consumatory deficit. So that means that they're not going to really look forward to things. There's no anticipation. There's no excitement for things that are coming up, but they'll still enjoy their coffee and their food and things like that. Um, 
for most people, not for everyone. And it's something that anhedonia, this is the interesting thing, anhedonia is something that even regular antidepressants don't do much to alleviate the symptoms of. So because of a lot of antidepressants cause something called reward blunting, which is where there's like a lower response to both positive and negative feedback. So the aim in antidepressants is obviously to blunt the lows. You don't want to feel the lows so intensely. And antidepressants are generally good, generally good at, you know, blunting these lows. But they also, a common side effect of antidepressants is that they blunt the good feelings too. So you kind of get like a lack of the really bad feelings, but also a lack of the really good feelings. And that's, and that's called either reward blunting or emotional blunting. Now, for around half of people who suffer depressive episodes, feeling of anhedonia is reported. So you're looking at this huge population of people that suffer from depression that also suffer from anhedonia and who will be on antidepressants where those antidepressants are not working on these feelings of anhedonia. So it's kind of like pretty fucked because a lot of feelings of anhedonia contribute to your feelings of depression. And if antidepressants aren't targeting that facet of depression, we've got a problem, okay? And ketamine is good at targeting anhedonia as well as depression, but independently. Now, a study was done on 36 participants to see if one infusion of ketamine could reduce levels of anhedonia in treatment-resistant bipolar depression, just one infusion. And it was found that after just one infusion, it rapidly reduced the symptoms of anhedonia for most people. So why is ketamine effective to treat depression in the first place? So it goes, I'm going to explain the hypothesis of antidepressants so you understand how ketamine works as opposed to the regular, quote-unquote regular, mainstream antidepressants that you hear about and that I've spoken about on the podcast before. So it goes on a different hypothesis than a lot of first-line treatments for depression go. The first-line treatment of depression is commonly something called an SSRI, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SSRI. So it has... Look, antidepressants have gone through a, ma- a massive history. Before SSRIs, there were things like barbiturates. There were there were all these different antidepressants. And as you go through the history of treatments for depression, you're also trying to minimize the side effects. You're trying to get an effective treatment with less side effects. Then you bring in a safer one. It's safer, less side effects. It's safer. It's effective. And that's how you evolve treatments for any disease or disorder, especially something like depression. And SSRIs apparently have less side effects and have a better safety profile than all the other antidepressants. And when I say apparently, it's because that it's still not that effective and some people still really do have unpleasant side effects with SSRIs. So I do want to, you know, make that known. But in general, the side effects are definitely not as bad and it's a safer drug to use in SSRI. And this is called by this is called the monoamine hypothesis. It predicts that the underlying pathophysiological basis of depression is a depletion in the levels of serotonin, norepinephrine and slash or dopamine in the brain or in the central nervous system. So a lot of antidepressants work on targeting the release or targeting the reuptake of these monoamines, these neurotransmitters. The way SSRIs work is by increasing the availability of serotonin in the extracellular space. So there's more chances of serotonin being absorbed. 
Um, and they do that by inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin in that space. Why is it called monoamine hypothesis? Why is it called monoamine? It's It just refers to the molecular structure of these particular neurotransmitters. So um, a monoamine is one amine group, amino group, that's connected to an aromatic ring by a two-carbon chain. That's just what it looks like. You don't need to think about that. But given how many people don't actually respond well to this kind of antidepressant treatment, which is at least one-third of people who get on these antidepressants, at least one-third don't respond to them. And given how long it takes for a patient to respond to these antidepressants shows that there's likely a whole lot of other functions at play in the brain. It can't just be this monoamine hypothesis, because if that was the case, you would think that it would be, there would be it'd be more effective across the board, which it's not. There's definitely other neurotransmitters. There's other chemicals involved that are causing depression. And it's not to say that these monoamines aren't responsible in some way, but it is to say that there's more going on in the brain and that isn't enough just to talk about the monoamine hypothesis. Okay, so enter ketamine. So ketamine as a treatment for depression is going off something called the glutamate hypothesis. So this is a different hypothesis that kind of searches to explain what's happening in the brain. So in this hypothesis, it states that overall decreased levels of glutamatergic metabolites in the medial frontal cortex, a part of the brain, are linked with the pathophysiology of depression. Therefore, depression may be associated with abnormal glutamatergic neurotransmission. So basically it's saying that there's abnormalities in the release, in the amounts of glutamatergic transmission within certain areas of the brain, and that may be one of the causes or the cause of depression. That's a hypothesis. It's not something that we know for sure. And ketamine is seen to have a really rapid antidepressant response in major depressive disorder patients and the effects are kind of multi-pronged. There's a lot going on. So it has rapid effects, like literally within a few hours, and it's it the effects last beyond a month. So you could have one infusion of ketamine and find that the effects last well after ketamine has left the body. Whereas antidepressants work completely, your typical SSRIs and things like that, you're taking it every single day. It takes weeks to kick in. And then once it does kick in, you're taking it every single day for you to continuously feel the effects. Ketamine works in a completely different way, which is quite fascinating. So we know that there's this really complex signaling cascade at play, and that's where where we have something called activity-dependent synapse formation. So synapses are the connections between neurons, and this basically means that the synapses are formed based on the levels of activity in that region. Cells that fire together, wire together, that kind of shit. And if you if you don't use it, you lose it. It's kind of around the, those lines of thinking. It also reverses synaptic deficits. So synaptic deficits is a reduction in synapses, and this is generally caused by chronic stress. And a lot of people with depression also stress a lot, okay? So um, you're getting this reduction in synapses. People with depression, people with chronic stress have a reduction in synapses, and Um, increasing activity in these regions and increasing synapses in these regions is something that ketamine has been shown to do. Um, Sub-anesthetic doses. So when you're taking ketamine to treat depression in a clinical setting, obviously administered by a clinician, 
in the correct setting with the right dose. It's a sub-anesthetic dose and it produces this kind of transient increase in glutamate in the prefrontal cortex. And that is one of the things that that we believe brings on this release of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which stimulates synaptic growth. So brain-derived neurotrophic factor is something that is really good at increasing synaptic plasticity within the brain. And it's released also when you exercise, when you do high-intensity exercise, when you do things like ice baths and saunas as well. That's how you can get a natural release of or increase of levels of this brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And it looks like ketamine has a similar effect in certain parts of the brain. So another hypothesis within this whole ketamine vibe is this the indirect hypothesis. And it proposes that ketamine first inhibits these things called GABA interneurons, which then disinhibit the glutamatergic neuron activity and therefore you're increasing glutamate in certain areas of the brain. So you've got this kind of direct pathway hypothesis and you've also got an indirect pathway hypothesis. Not to say that both can't work at the same time as well. Now, in an article that was released in the Journal of Nature, it was published last year and it was called, this is a good one to read, it's called Ketamine Triggers a Switch in Excitatory Neuronal Activity Across Neocortex. I'll link that in the bio, that article. It demonstrates that ketamine administration in mice, so it's, it, it is a mice study, it caused spontaneous, spontaneously active neurons to become suppressed while silent neurons became spontaneously activated. So you're seeing like a switch. Things that were really active got deactivated and the things that were deactivated got active. So you're seeing kind of literally it says it triggers a switch in excitatory neural activity and that massive shift in the brain could be what's kind of like jump-starting a few circuits in the brain and helping people feel a lot better. They also found that the two that these two non-overlapping neural populations, the ones that are implicated in wakefulness and also those that are involved in the in this ketamine-induced brain state, were both involved, which helps to kind of lay the foundations of how the brain leads to this like disconnected feeling from the environment when you have that ketamine high. And when people, like I said before, when people are highly stressed, your synapses, the connections between your neurons are pruned. They get kind of like reduced and stripped back. And there is, when synapses are pruned, there's this diminished communication between your nerve cells in the central nervous system. And this lower levels of connectivity between brain regions and synapses are seen in depressed individuals. If you look at the brains of people who are depressed, you're seeing lower levels of connectivity between brain regions and between nerve cells. And in just a 24-hour window, some of these connections after having ketamine administered, some of these connections begin to regrow, okay? So it's believed that the higher the growth rate of synapses, the more effective the antidepressant effects of ketamine are. So in where, where basically where people that took ketamine and had a really, really good response were the ones that had a really good increase of synaptic connectivity versus those that didn't have a great response didn't have an inc- a high enough increase of synaptic connectivity or plasticity. Then, of course, this has other positive effects as well. When you're increasing this connectivity between brain regions and synapses, um, you're getting things like improved sleep, um, better reasoning, um, generally better communication between brain regions, so you're less likely to be stressed over everything in your life, just the generally commonly stressful things will still stress you out, but not as you won't be as stressed as you used to be. You won't be as overwhelmed. Um, and it does address the low points, those really low, deep, dark points of depression in many patients. 
Another interesting thing is that with certain, after having certain infusions or, you know, a select number of infusions of ketamine, people found that antidepressants then after that seemed to work better and slash or therapy seemed to actually work for them. So whereas before the infusions of ketamine, nor like neither antidepressants nor um, therapy worked for them, it just it had no effect. Then because you're taking the ketamine and through a whole cascade of, of events in the brain, you're seeing more synapses, more connectivity, then these interventions actually have some effect, whether it be an SSRI, whether it be, you know, a different kind of um, antidepressant, as in a chemical antidepressant. And then, of course, with therapy, talking therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, things like that as well. Now, like I said, how can it be taken? So it can be administered as a nasal spray, S-ketamine is it's what it's called, or via IV. So with the in, intravenous infusion, it goes for around 40 minutes. The patient um, feels this kind of dissociative feeling. It's normally kind of in a darker setting, really relaxed setting. The person who is administering it normally will leave them alone or not really. To, it's just like sometimes they'll listen to music, like really calming music. Sometimes it'll just be quiet. But it's just you're there having the IV infusion and, you know, you're not being spoken to, nothing's happening, you're just relaxing. Um, after that drip finishes, the feeling will take around 15 to 20 minutes to wear off after the drip. So you're feeling it throughout and then for around 15, 20 minutes after, that's kind of like the half-life of the effects of the ketamine. Um, but then even after the ketamine has worn off, these antidepressant effects will last for days and even weeks after just one infusion. And when patients go through a series of infusions, these effects last longer and longer and longer. Not for every patient, of course, but for a significant number of patients. And the interesting thing is the high, this ketamine high itself, that's not what causes the antidepressant effects. It's the effect that ketamine has on the brain after the fact that is responsible for the antidepressant results. Now, something to note there's a couple of things to note before I wrap up this whole thing on ketamine. The first thing to note is that it might not be a suitable treatment for people with a history of substance abuse because it might have some effects on the opioid systems. We're seeing that there may be some effect of ketamine on the opioid system within the body. We have an endogenous opioid system within the body, okay, um, which is like a endogenous is like made by the body. And while it's no way near as addictive as other opioids like heroin and things like that, it's still a risk that needs to be accounted for. But when this is medically administrated, it's done in a way that's like spread out and tapered to reduce the risk of addiction in people um, because a lot of people don't find it addictive at all. But it is something to note that it might not be suitable for people with a history of substance abuse. And then another thing that's really, really important to note what I'm referring to here is clean ketamine that is administered at the correct dose in, this is very important, in the correct environment for the correct amount of time. That's what we're talking about when we talk about ketamine as a treatment for depression. So I've literally had people say, when I did ketamine, I was in a fucking K-hole and I had severe anxiety and a fucking, yeah, no shit, can't, of course, no wonder. Like, they're worlds apart. You can't compare mixing Ketamine with whatever the hell it's been laced with while drinking, while at a rave, not taking into account the dose amount and the duration versus what I just described in a clinical setting. 
everything is in the dose. The poison is in the dose. The medicine is in the dose. They're worlds apart. Okay? So let's not have that. Like, oh, but how come it's really, really, that's why. Cool. So that's the episode of today. I hope you found that interesting because I love that shit. And I think it's really amazing how ketamine is one of the few antidepressants that work on not only treating depression, but treating feelings of anhedonia as well, while other treatments are not effective at treating anhedonia the way ketamine is. Love that so much. Anyway, that's the episode of today. I do have a listener question now, so stay tuned. You have 100 message. All right, the listener question. Howdy, Alexis. Love the podcast. I'd love to ask a listener question to get your opinion on a hard decision, especially after listening to your sunk cost fallacy episode. Basically, I've come from a low-income, uneducated family, and I've always been the quote-unquote gifted and smart one in the family, being the first to go to college. I found a fully funded MA program after my undergrad, so I did that, and then I found a fully funded PhD and was starting, and, and I started doing that. But very quickly, I realized that the field that I was doing a PhD in, French, was not what I wanted for an eventual career, counseling. I stuck in it, meaning the coursework, for the benefits and stability while trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But now I'm ABD, all but dissertation, meaning I only have 1.5 to 2 years left of just writing my dissertation. And I know for certain that what I really want to do is go get an MA degree in counselling and work as a therapist. My wonderful partner is completely supportive of my career change and my family and friends are as well. And I'm feeling absolutely thrilled and fulfilled with the decision. And I've always been interested in psychology. And my French teaching was always a kind of facade for helping students um, one-on-one in office hours or in tutoring. It's like a secret career that has always been there that I've finally unearthed. So now, after this beautiful discovery, the question is, do I stay to write the dissertation? Writing every day when you don't care about what you're writing, only three people are ever going to read it, and these people are going to be insanely critical is truly difficult. Yet due to my upbringing, I know how much getting an education is a privilege, so I feel like I have no right to feel like writing a dissertation is difficult and no right to quit early for selfish reasons. Plus, if I stayed and finished, wouldn't it be a great example of grit and determination to do hard things just because I promised I'd do it? keeping a promise to yourself. And people keep saying that having a PhD, even if it's in French and the job you're applying for is in a different field like mental health, looks good on a resume and is proof of your work ethic. However, staying and forcing my way through the next 1.5 to 2 years just out of principle could leave me burnt out at the end and incapable of moving on to tackling my real goals. And it would add another 1.5 to 2 years to the timeline to becoming a professional, starting a family, etc. What do you think I should do? Or what do you think should be the questions I should be asking myself to determine what the right course of action is? Thanks and advice, a grateful listener. Okay, the first thing that I wanted to, there's a few things that I wanted to target here before I give you my straight up advice. Here you say you feel like you've got no right, you feel like you have no right to feel like writing a dissertation is difficult. It's not about a right to feel or not. It's fucking difficult. End of story. The next one, I have no right to quit early for selfish reasons. A career is for selfish reasons. It's what you want. You're doing it for you. You're not a martyr, hopefully not. So you're not every career decision unless You're talking about, I'm going to quit and travel the world when you have dependents. Every career decision when you don't have dependents should be a selfish one. It should be around what 
I want for my life, for the experiences that I want to be having in this life. Okay? So I don't think you should look at it for any other way but for selfish reasons. Okay? And and you could call them and selfish, you could label it that way, but I think we have a negative connotation towards the word selfish. I think you should look at it as as more for reasons that only, you know, factor you into it. And when it comes to career, it should only be factoring you and your feelings and your thought. You're the one that's going to be stuck for decades doing a career. You're the one that's going to be investing your time that you'll never be able to get back into this thing. So it should only be you who you're factoring into. And if you want to call that selfish, you can call it selfish. So that, yeah, selfish reasons are the reason why you should be, be you know, quitting or not quitting or whatever. Then you say, if I stayed and finished, it'd be a great example of grit because having a PhD, even if it's in French and the job you're applying for looks good on your resume. A PhD looks good on your resume, but it's not going to get you the job. I can tell you that for fucking free. It's not going to get you the job. It's kind of like those people that think that they'll work their ass off to go to the Olympics to get a gold medal because then it'll open doors. A gold medal does not open doors, okay? And then people, you know, think I've, I've like worked my ass off in this career and in this career, but it never actually opened doors in other careers. Why? Experience. Everything comes down to experience. No one's going to hire you because you're fluent. I'm fluent in Spanish and it has not opened career doors for me ever. Great for travel. Great for travel. Great for life experience. Not great for my career. It's not detrimental, but it's not helped me in my career. You being fluent in a language, you being great at another career is not going to help you. Like I... There's so many things that you can have on your CV that will be a conversation starter. But if it's not relevant to the career, it's not relevant to the career. If you rock up to an interview and you've got PhD in French and no experience under your belt and you've got someone else that's walked into the same field with experience under the belt, who do you think is going to get the job? Exactly. So that's not a good enough reason. If you're like, fuck what a vibe to have a PhD in French. It's always something I'm going to be passionate on the side. It's always something that's going to mean something to me. I can always put off this next career, but I just want to tick this off because this I, I'm passionate about it. Then I would advise that you continue doing it because it's your passion. But if you've already got, you know, an undergrad, a master's, if all you've got left is a dissertation and you see this never entering your career ever again, then you have to ask yourself, why am I doing it? Because... Unless it's relevant, it's not going to give you a job. It's not going to really open doors unless, like I said, it's relevant. So, I mean, I think there's this glorification of having all these titles and all of that because, yes, it definitely proves that you work hard, but you getting experience in the field that you want to be in and working hard at that also shows grit, also shows, you know, your work ethic. So you can display grit and work ethic in the field that you want to be doing. And then another possibility is, would you consider just putting this on ice, going into the career that you really want to do, and then saying, if in five years' time I'm like, skirt, this is absolutely not what I want to do, I can still go back and write my dissertation. I understand that this is like a funded PhD, so that might not be a possibility for you. Um, But I just feel like if you're literally going to do this entire dissertation for the title of PhD, Ask yourself why, like how much is it actually going to impact me? I understand you got the, the, you know, no one else in your family has done it and it's going to be this really meaningful thing. But at the end of the day, if you're not using it, it's just a title. If you're using it, it's more than a title. But 
I personally would really think long and hard as to what that those letters matter and does it matter more than right now working on a career that's going to be super fulfilling, that's going to make me like that I know is my thing, that's my why, that I can wake up every day being like, I'm pumped for this, I'm in the zone, I'm fucking doing this thing. Okay. So you've got to understand like, why is this title so important to me? Other than, you know, like I've got the support of my family, I've got everyone's on my side. So why am I clinging to this title? And when you figure out why it is that you're clinging to it, like what does it mean for your identity, then say, is that more valuable than having this career, which I found my thing. I found my purpose. People spend years, if not decades of their life, never knowing what their thing is, always kind of being like, oh, I couldn't, I never really find a passion. You found it. So I, it, I wouldn't hesitate if I were you personally. Um, but only if you see this really being valuable in your life moving forward, would I stay. But if there's no value other than the title, I personally would not stay. Cool beans. So that's the episode of today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. As always, remember, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke. Okay.